Way, 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 way back in history when I was in college, toward the end of my college career, I had this little blue piece of plastic that not everybody had. It was called a credit card. It, it would be unthinkable now, probably, for a college student to not have one. But way back in the day, it was almost a novelty. It was this little piece of plastic power. It was amazing. I needed textbooks. Cha-ching! I got textbooks. I needed to go to the doctor for strep throat. Cha-ching! I got antibiotics. I needed to rent a car to go to a job interview. Cha-ching! It was so cool. I just kept getting everything that I needed, and I never saw the bill. My parents had agreed to pay them. What a coup I had. Well, it just so happened right about this time, a man by the name of Pete Rose played for the Cincinnati Reds, started five different positions in all-star games across the course of his career. He was chasing Ty Cobb for the Major League Baseball all-time hits leader. Say what you will about Pete Rose. It was September 1985, and I couldn't resist. So some friends and I got a red schedule, a calendar, and we did our best job of predicting just when we thought Pete would get that magical record-breaking hit. Then we took my credit card, made one phone call, and cha-ching, a big stack of Cincinnati Reds tickets showed up in my mailbox. It was great. My friends and I headed on down to Riverfront Stadium for the big event. I wish I could tell you that I actually saw Pete hit his 4,192nd hit. He did that a night or two later after my friends and I had mispredicted when he would do it. But we had a good time, went back, life continued on as normal until I went to my mailbox and there was this envelope from my dad. When I opened it up, there was the visa bill with all those Cincinnati Reds tickets on it. And a note from my dad, and I quote, From now on, you will need to settle your own accounts. Love, Dad. My dad and I had an agreement. I violated the terms of that agreement. So the debt belonged to me. Well, you might be thinking, how bad could it be? It wasn't that much, just some baseball tickets. That's sort of true, but my income at the time was like not even quite $100 a month. If I had possessed all the money in the world, maybe the debt would have meant nothing to me. But in my poor, downtrodden college student economy, that visa debt was an insurmountable debt. I couldn't imagine how I was going to figure out a way to pay for it. We've been studying in Romans since early October. And we've come to understand that God is angry about sin. It's not just they who are guilty, but it's you and it's me. We aren't in the jury box. We're the defendants and we're guilty. We're in the courtroom and there's no way to get us to the living room on our own. You and I have an insurmountable debt. 
It's a righteousness deficit that we can never account for. As long as this debt is on our ledger, we will never get out of the courtroom. We pick up tonight in Romans chapter 4, page 1781 in the Pew Bible. Paul continues his letter to the church people at Rome. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Another translation says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. A couple of weeks ago, Steve Fowler taught and he, he illustrated how Paul used the legal language of the courtroom. He used language of the slave market. He used language of the temple. Paul was all about reaching his audience. And now in chapter 4, Paul uses the language of an accountant. He uses financial language. He says that by faith, Abraham was counted as righteous. It was credited to Abraham as righteousness. This is referring to back in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. God had made amazing promises to Abraham and they were not being fulfilled right immediately. But in the midst of mystery... In the midst of this life, not knowing all the twists and turns, there was this cataclysmic moment in Abraham's life. And Romans chapter 4, verse 3 says, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Imagine the scene. God is counting all the people on the planet and he counts Abraham. As righteous. There was no way to know, humanly speaking, what Abraham's future would be, what his performance would be. And yet, God went ahead and counted him as righteous. Abraham's account was settled because of his faith, not because of any payment plan. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Steve Dangaren did that interview with a young woman named Ashley. She told her story. She went up to that golf course in Woodburn and she got under that tree and she met with God. And she, she expressed to him that she had a sin problem and she was powerless to do anything about it on her own. She gave herself to Christ. And at that very moment, boom, right then and there... God counted Ashley as righteous. The deal is sealed. She's only 17 years old. The rest of her life is out there in front of her. But like anyone who turns to God by faith, she was declared righteous. The insurmountable debt was wiped away. The righteousness deficit was accounted for. And Ashley went from the courtroom to the living room. Remember my dad sending me the visa bill? Settle your own accounts? You and I have an insurmountable debt 
We have a righteousness deficit that we can never account for on our own. We fail to meet God's holy, perfect standard. Our ledgers have a deficit on them. Have you ever considered some of the things we do or some of the ways we try to make up for the deficit? Paul addresses three of them. And let's continue in Romans 4. And as he uses this financial imagery, I hope we can consider our own debts. Romans chapter 4, verse 4. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God, who forgives sinners. Paul eliminates work as a way that anybody would earn righteousness. Think about it for a minute. You get up every morning, day after day, you go to work. Two weeks later, you get a paycheck. Do you think that's a gift? No. I mean, don't we seem to have this attitude? That's my hard-earned cash. I'm overworked. I'm underpaid. That's how life works. This fall, I went to a parenting seminar that's associated with my boys' preschool. And the speaker gave this really intriguing, thought-provoking information. She said that even kids as young as three and four look at life and they say, how hard am I going to have to work and what will I get paid? Now it begins when we say to little Johnny, if you will share nicely, you can play with this toy. Or if you'll sit quietly at circle time, you'll get a treat. But think about it. This mentality seems to go wherever we go. It's natural to us, so natural that anything contrary to work your way to the top doesn't even seem to add up. In grade school, we have neat handwriting and we get A's. In middle school, if we're funny or pretty, we get elected to student council. In high school, if we score well on tests, we get college scholarships. At the office, if we work hard and gut it out, we'll get a promotion. And when we don't... By instinct, we can become indignant. We're not getting what we deserve. We're not getting what we've earned. Work hard, get what you earn. This seems to be how the world works. But as much as this work for what you get idea permeates all of our thought, Paul turns it upside down when he says in verse 5, But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. We've learned a certain way, but when it comes to salvation, it doesn't mean it's God's way. Continuing on, verse 6. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. 
Paul quotes King David, and every Jew around him at the time would have known King David, the second king of Israel, the one that God had promised would be the one that their savior would come through his lineage. And Paul quotes Psalm 32 that David had written. David says that joy comes to a person not when they achieve sinlessness, but when their sin is forgiven by God. This great joy when the Lord clears the record of sin, not when the person's good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. David had a ledger of his own, and he had a righteousness deficit. He had been chosen by God to be the king of Israel, but that didn't make him sinless. 2 Samuel chapter 11 in the Old Testament, it tells the reality of David's life. When one thing led to another and David committed adultery with another man's wife and the woman became pregnant and David in effect set her husband up to go get killed in battle. David is guilty. He's a sinner. And it's the sinner who Paul quotes when he wants to capture the freedom that comes through God's forgiveness, the freedom that comes to a sinner. Paul says there is happiness for those who are declared righteous without working for it. You and I have an insurmountable debt. It's a righteousness deficit and we can never account for it on our own. We cannot work our way from the courtroom to the living room. Verse 9. Now, is this blessing only for the Jews or is it also for uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we've been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. It was faith, not any religious ceremony. The Bible doesn't tell us in Genesis 15 exactly how old Abraham was when God declared him righteous. But when we take Genesis 15, 16, and 17 and study them carefully, we learn that more than a decade passes between the time that he's declared righteous and the time that he's circumcised. And we need to be very careful. It wasn't circumcision that retroactively made him righteous. God justified him by faith, and then later on, more than 10 years later, God directed him to be circumcised, and he obeyed. It honored God. It marked him as one who belonged to God. Think about ceremonies in our time, something like a baby dedication. We aren't saying that the ceremony saves anybody. It doesn't save the parents, doesn't save the baby. But the ceremony is intended to be an external demonstration of what's going on on the inside. The parents' lives are being transformed by Christ and they want to dedicate the child and commit themselves to teaching the child the ways of God. 
Maybe we could look at church attendance similarly, like it would somehow help us reduce our righteousness deficit. Whatever it might be, the answer is no. People are declared righteous by faith in God, not by ceremony. Paul wants to be sure that we understand there's no earned income credit for ceremony. You and I have an insurmountable debt. It's a righteousness deficit that we can never account for. We won't earn our way into the living room and there's no extra credit for ceremony. Verse 13. Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. God declared Abraham righteous and then several hundred years passed before God gave the law. Think about this. The United States of America, we're just a bit more than 230 years old. Think of all the history that has transpired. Well, it was even longer than that between the time that Abraham was declared righteous and the law was given. God counted Abraham righteous centuries before the law was given. The law doesn't enable someone to become righteous. In fact, trying to meticulously obey the law just helps us know that we can't do it on our own. I have a five-year-old daughter, and she started kindergarten this fall, and we used to have really leisurely mornings at our house, but knowing that she had to be at school at eight o'clock five days in a row, we had to change the rules a little bit. So now the plan was I go into her room, wake her up, she gets dressed and then comes downstairs, has breakfast and we get on the way. So one of those first mornings in September, I woke Sarah up, I got her going, getting dressed and I went down to fix breakfast. And I waited and I waited and I waited, and I knew whatever was going on was probably a lesson she needed to learn, and finally, she came downstairs, and she was perfectly dressed, and she was filled with remorse, and she said, oh, mommy, I wanted so badly to obey you and do it quickly, but I started doing the hokey pokey, and I lost all track of time. Even with the best of intentions, if it's not the hokey pokey, it'll be something else that distracts or deceives. You and I are not capable of obeying the law perfectly. That's why God made a promise to us that righteousness wouldn't need to come through the law, but through the promise. Listen to verse 14 again. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary. And the promise is pointless. 
Friday morning, yesterday morning, I was in a rush like most mornings. Getting three small children ready in a short amount of time is a tough job. One of my children had breakfast and was refusing to eat it. The other two didn't yet have breakfast but were clamoring to eat. They were climbing all over me. And I'm not going to go into detail because this isn't about my kids. This is about me. But there was this big crash, a huge mess, and a bunch of chaos And I'm mortified to tell you this, but with perfect enunciation, a cuss word came out of my mouth. (laughs) And a silence fell over the kitchen. Think about it. I'm on staff here at your church, (laughs) at least until the next governing board meeting. I love the Lord. This past week, I was saturated in God's word. Most mornings, honestly, I get up before anyone in my house and I spend time with God just because I want to. But I'm not capable. No amount of sincerity, no amount of anything can enable me to obey the law. Perfectly. It isn't possible for my daughter, it isn't possible for me, and it isn't possible for you. Like when my dad told me I was going to be accountable to pay that visa bill, you and I have a righteousness deficit and we cannot account for it on our own. We won't earn our way to the living room, we don't get extra credit for ceremony, and none of us will ever obey God's law perfectly. By faith and by faith alone. That's the only way a person will ever go from the courtroom to the living room. This has always been God's way. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned. And God didn't tell them, figure out a way to solve your problem. No, he told them one would come to solve the problem. In Isaiah, the people walking in darkness were not told, turn the light on. No, they were told the light would come. And Jesus came and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to right relationship with God except by faith in Jesus. When we entrust ourselves to him by faith, God declares us righteous. And then just imagine with me. Obedience, special religious ceremony, good works, they become our offerings of gratitude to God because we appreciate so much that he saved us. In 1998, I was engaged to my husband, a very frugal man. I was in grad school and I was living on a shoestring. I was earning just enough money to pay rent and buy groceries, but nothing else. And that spring, I began to have a series of car trouble. I was on a trip to Seattle and I broke down in Kelso, Washington. And I'll never forget the next day when I finally got things fixed and got home. And I was telling Nick that I had had to put $350 
on my visa card. It was so scary to be racking up debt that I cried. Over the next few months, it happened several times. And it always seemed to happen when I was off by myself someplace. Car trouble after car trouble, not knowing what else to do, I used the credit card and the bills kept piling up. This wasn't buying baseball tickets. I was trying to be responsible. I was working hard. I wanted to graduate with no debt. But the fact was a 12-year-old car is going to break down. Well, my parents came out from Ohio to visit. And while they were visiting, my dad began to ask about my finances. He was an accountant for 43 years. And accountants do not like debt. So I began to squirm, and I went into this long, drawn-out explanation. My tuition's paid, I have groceries, my rent is current, but there's this issue that I haven't been able to get my hands on, and I just started to cry. I was working and going to school in Portland, I was interning here at the church, and my car was key to the whole operation. And time after time after time, I just kept putting car repairs on that credit card. And by this point, there was over $3,000. And I had just learned that I was losing my job. No way did I have any ability to pay that. The next day, out of nowhere, my dad came to me and he said, I want you to start your marriage debt-free. He took out his checkbook and he wrote a check. He covered the debt that I had no ability to pay. Just like that, my account was settled. My debt was gone because he loved me. That's the picture for you and for me in Romans chapter 4. We have an insurmountable debt. We have a deficit of righteousness. And we cannot account for it on our own. But God can. Will you trust him for it?